All right. Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Andrea Armeni, even though it might say Isabel Clerier on the screen, uh, the usual Zoom issues. Um, I would like to welcome you to this uh, webinar of the Transform Finance Investor Network, where we'll be discussing tech platform cooperatives, food, and the sharing economy. Three big topics. Uh, they might seem disparate in some ways, but fortunately, thanks to Matt Jorgensen joining us from Josephine, we'll be able to um, drive them all together into one uh, coherent uh, piece. Um, we'll be going through some of these issues in turn, and I wanted to start by introducing this concept of uh, a tech platform. Uh, and uh, but before doing that, sorry, just a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, we're still getting familiarized with the Zoom software. We recently switched over, so if you have any issues in submitting questions, you can do so through the chat function, I believe, or by apparently raising a flag. I don't know quite how that works, but we'll we'll try to sort that all out. Uh, so there should be a, a way for, for you to submit questions, submit a chat and, uh, and the like for what I think is going to be an extremely engaging presentation that might raise a lot of questions. So getting started with this notion of tech platform ownership and uh, what has come to be known recently as platform co-ops. Um, I want to step into this idea of disruption, for lack of a better term, uh, since it got thrown around so much, of entrenched uh, industries, whether it might be the taxicab industry, the hotel industry, or other forms of um, the provision of goods and services that are taking advantage of uh, technological advances as a way of providing new ways for, for these goods to, to reach consumers. Now, while disruption is generally celebrated in this odd intersection of um, um, social enterprise, impact investing, civic tech, whatever you might want to call it, the question still remains around who truly benefits from, uh, from that disruption. Is it the ultimate users? the the ones that use these uh, goods and services is it the providers that in the past were subject to to other uh, in some cases monopolistic restrictions um, is it multi-stakeholder type of benefit or is it really ultimately the owners of the um, of the platform itself and that brings up a, an ancillary question around who gets to control this uh, this platform so when uh, uh, when I take an Uber, let's say, uh, which has disrupted the taxi cab industry, really the control doesn't lie with me necessarily in terms of uh, pricing, in terms of what's made available to me. Uh, and it doesn't lie with the driver either or with any kind of, um, um, say, taxi cooperative or, or otherwise. It really lies within the platform and within the algorithm that has been set up for it, which tends to accrue the value to the um, uh, to the owners of that platform. In most of the cases, I would say it is once again an issue of uh, the shareholders. So the way in which the ownership of that platform is set up determines both who the value accrues to and who the control is uh, accruing to. And so we can look at it in this way by saying, okay, are we just disrupting industries that are entrenched or is there a way in which we can also uh, disrupt the underlying model of control 
of, um, uh, of the services that are provided as well as the value that is being created. So that's the lens through which we want to look at it in the usual transform finance principles way of uh, engaging the communities in the design and in the governance and the ownership of projects that affect them. This seems to fall squarely within, uh, um, within that camp. Um, and I want to start with this um, quote from uh, Janelle Orsi of the Sustainable Economies Law Center, who was paraphrasing David Bollier in a series of articles in The Nation that were published around the idea of platform cooperatives and algorithmic transparency. And uh, she is equating the platform to the idea of a commons, um, or conversely, the platform as um, equivalent to a rent-seeking kind of uh, highway where you are being told just for going through it. So she says, the commons arises whenever a group of people decides to collectively manage a resource with a special regard for equitable access and long-term stewardship. Now, these are uh, values that we can see how they could be incorporated into a, uh, into a tech platform, in particular within a sharing economy, peer economy type of context, but they are not necessarily there, both in terms of the, the equity of the access and the stewardship of these assets, if really this asset is being used in a, a profit-maximizing, fairly traditional way, uh, that is not surprising for the ones that are um, essentially VC funded and IPOable type of um, type of platforms. So uh, when we, if we're thinking of the platform as something that could be reacting to a non-democratic uh, one controller type of uh, type of monopoly, we see how there should really be a lot more attention to this idea of who gets to control it, who gets to make those um, uh, to make those decisions. And also, how do we make it more transparent for everybody that is involved in that uh, in the value chain? Um, do I actually know how the algorithm from Facebook or from Twitter is providing me information? I don't, but the one thing that I do know at the moment is that it's driven by profit maximization principles, not by principles of what would be most interesting to me. And of course, to the extent that the, the revenue generation um, uh, thesis behind it is based on advertisements. Uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, this is one of those instances where the idea that if you don't pay for something, you're not the customer, you are the goods. I am the one that is being sold to the advertisers and therefore that non-transparent algorithm is serving their interests and not mine. My interests are only served indirectly insofar as they tend to the profit maximization for the ones that are actually generating the revenue for, for that company. So um, just want to put that idea out there of commons versus a rent-seeking way of, uh, uh, of thinking of platforms, and ultimately bringing it back to the um, usual fundamental issue of investor primacy. So can we really see these platforms as an instance via cooperative or shared ownership of solving and disrupting a particular industry without in the process worsening the issue of wealth extraction. So can we um, use these advances in a way that is not just solving one individual instance of a problem within a vertical, such as lack of access to cabs or whatever it might be, but also doing so um, as a, a, in a way that might be conducive to shared wealth creation. 
For these, uh, we'll dig into all of these issues now with uh, uh, Matt Jorgensen, who is the co-founder and the co-CEO of uh, Josephine. And he used uh, um, in our prior conversations this idea of a platform as a profit for society. Uh, not profit for individual, not profit for investor, but really profit for society that engages all those uh, stakeholders at the, um, uh, at the same time. Um, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. I will turn it over to you. I might jump in here and there, and uh, hopefully it will be possible for the participants as well through the chat or the question function to, um, to join us too. Thank you for being with us. Great. Thank you so much. Am I uh, unmuted now? You are unmuted, and you should have control of the slides. Okay, fantastic. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Really thrilled to, to be part of this conversation with y'all. Um, it's interesting. I, I wasn't going to start here, but uh, Andre, I really appreciated your, your introduction and uh, hadn't seen that, that quote from, from Janelle before, but, but I think that the the comparison to, to rent-seeking highways is, is an interesting one. and, and I'll, uh, I'll start out with, with an anecdote from this morning. I, I, um, I, almost, I almost didn't make it here on time uh, because there was a 30 minute delay on, on the BART for, for police activity. And, and that's a system that, that I take very much for granted. You know, I, I commute every day uh, by BART and bus. And when, when it works well, it's invisible. And, and when it's not working, I, I realize just how important it is. Um, and, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get more into some of these topics, but uh, I've, I've actually been reading quite a bit about the, the history of, of roads in America, uh, and so it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting comparison there, um, where we're early, early in the history of, of the um, United States, actually. Um, we didn't have a lot of road infrastructure, and this, was, this is a bit of a tangent before I start the actual presentation, but in the... In the late uh, 18th century, we actually had uh, roads fan out across this country um, that were largely created by turnpike trusts, which were these privately owned, um, kind of locally financed um, institutions. Um, and there was, there was over 2,000 private uh, turnpike trusts in the, the early 19th century. Um, and the explosion of, of road construction was actually driven uh, early on by, by local demand for commercial and community opportunities um, and actually an explosion of, of private road construction. Um, but pretty quickly, as, as we know in this country, the, at the federal and state level, we realized that, that these are important public utilities. Um, and, and over time, we transferred uh, in, in the 20th century, many state governments took over ownership and construction of roads. So uh, we'll get more into some of these comparisons, but I think uh, just by way of saying Great introduction and, and very, very parallel conversations uh, between the platforms today that are in a lot of ways the roads and bridges of, of the new economy um, and the, the early development of, of public civic infrastructure in this country, the roads, bridges, schools, libraries, all the things that, that we kind of take for granted now as, as foundational infrastructure uh, in, in the United States. Um, so, uh, without going too much further down that tangent, um, I'll get started on, on the meat of the presentation, um, which, uh, let's see if I have control here. You should be able to just click on it and it should move forward. Oh. It is a, uh, because it's a PDF, I think I have to scroll. Oh, okay, sorry about that. 
Oh, uh, no worries, no worries. Um, so good, I think that should work. Um, the 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 place I wanted to start is just this notion that that platforms are are so quickly displacing uh, the entrenched industrial economy. You know, this is the last 150 years brought us mass-produced uniform commodities uh, from large corporations and governments, um, and and for for a lot of reasons, uh, that's that's becoming as as Andrea said uh, to use a buzzword very quickly disrupted. Um, there are a few reasons for this. The reasons why the Lyfts and Ubers, the Airbnbs and Etsy's are so quickly displacing uh, the entrenched industrial economy. Um, some of it is, is new forms of efficiency um, from underutilized assets and time and, and things that were, were owned exclusively uh, over the last hundred years as, as we uh, hold up uh, our private versus public uh, distinction. Um, and, and now potentially there is more of an opportunity to share uh, with, with tech-mediated networks. There's also a, a consumer movement uh, that's swinging back against mass production and uniformity and, and uh, an increased desire for human touch and idiosyncrasy and, and solving for boredom and loneliness, not just, not just maximizing uh, production and output. Um, and then there's, there's also this, this movement towards uh, the potential, anyway, for empowerment of workers and, and more self-determination over, over jobs and, and uh, access to, to economic opportunity. Um, So overall, what we're seeing is, is that these entrenched industries, uh, everything from, from where we live to how we get around to, to some of the basic uh, social services that we, that we use to access things like healthcare, um, used to be provided by these central, uh, centralized either, either government institutions or um, capitalist institutions. Uh, and, and for the first time, uh, these the the direct connection that we're that we're able to facilitate once again with with not only the people directly around us but our broader networks um, is, is cutting out of the equation uh, these entrenched industries and and harnessing a, a new power of, of distributed networks um, that 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 opens up opportunities uh, we really haven't seen before and and a lot of techno optimists um, myself included feel feel like there's there's a real opportunity here for trust, um, a, a rebuilding of trust mediated by technology um, that's, that's making a comeback along with this paradigm of, of the village uh, rather than the anonymous city, um, a place where we can connect directly with the people around us, um, trust them, and, and uh, do, do business in a way that feels less like the business of the industrial capitalist age and, and business that feels more like the the friend networks, uh, mutual support uh, of of the village and the, the pre-industrial age, um, and again, you know, it's uh, on some level this is this is a, a recognition that that we've solved for mass production. Um, of course, we have huge problems around access and and uh, distribution of of what we produce, but but some of the bigger problems that are emerging um, post uh, industrial age are, are how do we solve for the basics of, of human loneliness and need for connection uh, and, and uh, endowing our goods and services with, with a, um, uh, a, greater, a, a greater sense of human touch than, than the mass production of, of the industrial age. 
And one of the big questions, uh, as, as we're all familiar with, is, is who's going to benefit from this, this massive shift in, in the, way our, the way our economy is structured? Um, there's there's uh, reasons for concern, um, and, and a, lot of, a lot of what we're seeing, unfortunately, is, is a rise of a new type of, uh, a new type of massive uh, corporation, uh, the Airbnbs and the Ubers of the world that, that are harnessing this, this new distributed network power, uh, but, but centralizing a lot of the control, uh, wealth accretion, um, and, and ultimately decision-making in the hands of, of still a, a relatively small group of people. Um, And my feeling anyways, is that the, the peer economy or the sharing economy, whatever you want to call it so far has not set a great example. Um, you know, the, the platforms that we've seen so far, the, the sharing economy companies like Uber, Airbnb, TaskRabbit, um, they are remarkable in a lot of ways. They've, they've increased efficiencies. They've, they've, uh, I think in, in cities, um, that, that share this data, uh, Uber, for example, has, has increased the number of people using the transportation um, system uh, by, by 10, 20, 30 uh, percent by, by making parts of it more economical. But at the same time, there are obviously huge, huge problems. A lot of these platforms have tended to be very consumer focused um, in, in a way that reflects on how they, how they treat their, their workers. Um, and um, largely, uh, they, they've evaded some of the very basic responsibilities um, of, of ethical employment and have worked to create a, a growing class of workers that are, that, are, that are invisible, on demand, hidden behind apps, and, and frankly used kind of as, as interchangeable pawns um, rather than um, what they are, which is, which is the core of the value of, of these new distributed networks. Um, and, and some of the basics when it comes to uh, empowerment and, and advocacy on, on, the, on the part of workers, um, you know, there, there's, there's all these debates, 1099 contractor versus employee, um, al al algorithmic transparency, um, neutrality, and, and, and a lot of these, these issues come back to um, four platforms uh, that have, that have outpaced the existing um, legal structures and uh, protections for for workers uh, it's it's easier for it's easier for them to be hands-off zero accountability um, in a way that that lets them tacitly or, or explicitly deny any responsibility uh, for for the end users um, of their platforms um, and and this has huge implications you know for 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 the first time, some of the data is coming in, particularly this year from the Census Bureau, from, from big research institutions, and uh, already we're seeing one in, one in three folks are, are making money in some form from, from the, this distributed peer economy. Um, a lot of them, not necessarily by choice. A lot of these uh, workers are the same workers that have always been vulnerable and voiceless in, in the low-wage service sector. The, uh, the folks that are working multiple jobs uh, to keep the lights on and and a lot of these folks um, for the first time you know maybe they maybe they have quote unquote more self determination uh, and and individual responsibility because of access to all these different gigs um, but but a lot of them are are looking more like 
indentured servitude uh, to, to these new platforms and, and the, the algorithms that drive how much income they, they earn and, and the, the terms of their employment. And they don't have, they don't have uh, access to many of the traditional protections like unionization um, or guaranteed minimum wage uh, that, that we built uh, as protections, um, frankly, to, to some of the, the excesses of the early industrial economy, the, the robber barons of, of the industrial age as, as folks flocked to cities, entered factories, and, and we had all those problems 150, 100 years ago. Um, and, and now we're dealing with them again as, as this fundamental fabric of the economy shifts. So bringing it back to, to the, the point that, that we actually started out with, um, these peer-to-peer -peer networks uh, in many ways are becoming the roads, the bridges, the electrical grid of the new economy. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, is um, that they are um, very, uh, very directly becoming, um, becoming the ways that we access basic social services, the way we access employment um, and the platforms that are that are cropping up are are largely the the gatekeepers to that to that infrastructure. The the Googles and Facebooks of the online world, the Ubers and Airbnbs of the physical world, they're they're remaking the the fabric of of the economy. Um, and um, you know this is this is something that we need to watch uh, very closely because it affects not just the, the early adopters of these platforms, but will affect uh, all of us. So how do we ensure that, that this new economic and social infrastructure is serving the, the public interest rather than the interest of, of a select few? Um, and, and again, this is, this is kind of a tangent of, of my personal geeking out and, and research and, and not something Andre and I intended to cover, but, but I'll go back to this anecdote about the about the, the highways and the, the rent-seeking turnpikes. Um, early on, um, the, these, these 2000 uh, turnpike trusts that cropped up in, in the early 20th century, um, they were structured as corporations for, for financing purposes, but, but most, most of them ultimately found their real support among community leaders who recognized uh, the broader public interests at hand. So uh, appeals, uh, I mean, this is just reading that I've been doing, appeals were made in newspapers, local speeches, town meetings, um, and really stress the the importance of community improvement rather than than dividends and returns for these for these early turnpikes. And 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 over time, you know, individual individual communities would take a risk on a road, and and over time, the state and federal government actually kind of cherry picked like which of those roads worked, figured out where we need roads. They stepped in to say. Um, okay, either we're going to own and control this as, as the, the government that serves the public interest, or we're going to regulate um, things like the tolls you can charge, the, the um, ability to travel freely for family emergency um, or illness, um, and where you know, the private demand initially helped indicate where the roads should be built. Uh, state governments got involved in, in all, these, all these things like free passage and, and fair regulation as, as the, the public interest got proven out. Um, and and I, think it's, I think it's a great analogy um, and, and one that parallels uh, a lot of these conversations about how we can hold emerging platform gatekeepers to a higher standard. Um, the, um, the, the conversations that 
that are happening around algorithmic transparency uh, and, and net neutrality, you know, they, they harken back to these free passage laws and common carrier laws that we had to protect um, folks in, in the, the burgeoning industrial economy. And recognizing that this is a very fundamental shift in, in how, um, how people access and and interact uh, with with not only their the economic fabric but the social and community fabric uh, is critical. Um, we we have to recognize uh, these emerging platforms for for what they are, which is um, new new utilities. Um, even even in in cities that have pushed hard against uh, the Airbnbs and Ubers, there's been a recognition. I, I saw a speech. Recently, by the mayor of Boston, where where he compared Uber to a new um, a new line on the T, you know, a new um, a, a new uh, public infrastructure line, and and recognizing how how fundamental a lot of these platforms are going to be in the new economy is is the first step towards towards recognizing uh, that we need to to treat them very carefully and and direct the way they they develop. And if I can add to that, Matt, uh, yeah. I think that the the overarching point that you're bringing up in this analogy is also this issue of uh, accountability. Mm -hmm. uh, who, um, who are the, the controllers of this platform accountable to? So here in New York, no matter how bad the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey is handling the bridges and the airports, mm -hmm. at least there is a baked-in process whereby uh, a citizen has recourse in case of, uh, of mismanagement or otherwise. And frankly, if I've come again to count on um, Uber, let's say, for, for my income, and Uber decides to shut down tomorrow, well, there is no real accountability process that is built, uh, that is built into that. So however disenchanted we might feel about the way that um, public utilities such as the roads mm -hmm. or, or the train infrastructure has been managed, at least there is a process built in there that seems to be missing in most of the platforms that are emerging. Totally. I, I, I think, you know, we can, we can all debate the state of our roads or the state of our law enforcement or public utilities, but we'll mostly agree that they're important. <laughs> and uh, we're in the Wild West right now of, of uh, what that looks like for the emerging decentralized economy and, and legal precedent, permits, occupational licensing, workers' rights, benefits, labor unions. It's, it's all very quickly being outpaced by uh, smartphone access, blockchain, um, and and new accountability mechanisms are there. Ratings, reviews, um, but but how do we make those ratings and reviews accountable to the public interest? Uh, and and self regulation uh, very likely is is necessary, but not sufficient for um, proving uh, and ensuring that these these platforms benefit the public interest. Um, before I move to to, to talking about Josephine. Um, I, I, I've been struck. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess up the quote, but I was struck by something President Obama said at, at White House Frontiers last month, which was was that the the federal government will never operate uh, or conduct itself like Silicon Valley, um, and and the simple reason is, is that the federal government is is responsible for the 99 percent, and that's not easy. You know, it's it's um, whereas uh, a, a Feedback loop like reviews on, on Uber uh, might just leave some people out to dry if they get bad reviews and get dropped from the platform. Um, you know, the, the BART system has, has to deal with, with police activity every day uh, because it's serving, it's serving the 99%. And 
you know, we can we can gripe and groan about the delays that that almost cause us to miss webinars. But the, the very the very basic uh, feeling that I have anyway is is one of immense gratitude and and appreciation for for these things that we can take for granted uh, in a country like the United States and and want to be able to take for granted at least for some level uh, in the emerging in, in the emerging new economy. So, let's see if I can scroll down. On to Josephine. Um, before I before I talk about what we do at Josephine, um, how we think about our our offering and and our work itself, um, I'll tell you a little bit about our team. Um, we we came to working on Josephine from from a lot of different backgrounds and perspectives, um, but. Really, we, we feel as though we're a team of activists. Um, some of the team, myself included, um, really came from an excitement and, and interest in, in labor justice and the opportunities to create more inclusive opportunities um, as part of, as part of this, this fundamental shift in, in the way we do business and the, the, the new peer economy. Um, a lot of our team also, um, two of our founding team members, have masters in public health and really come to uh, Josephine from a, a, a background in food justice and, and an interest in uh, how do we, uh, you know, the, the peer economy is not just disrupting uh, mobility and and uh, lodging. It's it's also disrupting things as as fundamental as uh, how we eat and and as part of that, how can we how can we use this change to unlock um, more access to, to healthy and affordable food options, uh, particularly in food deserts, um, for folks that the industrial economy didn't find it profitable to serve. Um, and and lastly, kind of kind of a wrapper on all of this is is a real kind of civic inclination of our team. Um, you know, trying to find ways to um, be humble and, and remind ourselves that uh, to some extent we're taking on problems that aren't our own. This is, this is a privilege that we have as a team. Um, and as a result, we, we have to remind ourselves that we don't know what the right answer is. And, and those answers are going to come from, come from our community. So being a permeable organization where um, we um, are open to um, essentially becoming the emergent voice for the providers that we serve, um, sponsoring legislation and doing advocacy work on their behalf, um, and, and ultimately figuring out how we can bake distributed decision-making and ownership into the organizational model itself is, is something that we're very excited about. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll say on, on the one hand, um, my co-CEO, co-founder Charlie and I were, were pretty agnostic to the, the form of, of our organization. We, we decided to incorporate uh, and, and try to build a for-profit uh, sustainable organization because we believe it's the fastest way to, to scale impact and, and address some of the things that we are very excited about as activists. Um, but a lot of what I'm excited about uh, to, to engage with folks on, on, on this webinar and, and outside about our, our, you know, how do we stay accountable to these, these core mission and values that drive our work uh, and, and what makes sense from an organizational perspective to, to make some of these values non-negotiable. So to contextualize the, the problem we are working on, um, 
we didn't we didn't come to Josephine with with a hypothesis about you know we are going to bring the pure economy to food. Um, instead, I'd be working with uh, food entrepreneurs on on uh, the ground in in Oakland and Berkeley uh, in the East Bay in California. Um, a lot of whom were were already operating uh, different types of informal food businesses. So. Um, private chefing and catering out of their homes, hawking tamales, doing potlucks and pop-ups and church bake sales. Um, and what we realized about uh, a, lot of, a lot of these folks were that they were very experienced cooks. They were pillars of their community and, and everyone knew that they had good food, that they were nourishers. Um, but, but they had chosen either to leave or, or not to enter the, the traditional food industry um, because frankly, it's, it's one of the most exclusive and oppressive industries in the country. It's, uh, uh, it's synonymous with minimum wage and the fight for 15. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the very basic fights about improving, uh, improving labor, labor standards come from, from the food industry. And over 50% of, of all minimum wage jobs in the U S are in the food industry. So there's, there's this thriving informal economy, um, of, of folks that, um, have, have kind of stayed in the shadows, uh, because it was the way to, to earn some income within their their existing lifestyle constraints and with their existing skill sets, and and those were the the cooks that that we decided to serve, not not the not the culinary school grads that that were already working in the professional industry, um, and and frankly the cooks that that a lot of the consumer foodie and and food tech uh, movements have uh, or or. Um, um, or businesses have focused on, uh, but this, but this tranche of, of, of cooks that, that are very experienced as, as nourishers and, and our community pillars, uh, because they share their food and their cultural histories, uh, through food, um, but haven't been served by, by the, the food industry. So what is Josephine? Um, we help home cooks build, uh, essentially a, a small food business, um, from from their own homes. Um, so the way the the platform works for for customers is is if you get invited by a cook, um, you can you can sign up and and actually order hot meals to go from them um, and and go pick them up for dinner. Um, Ninety percent of our of our focus though has been on the cook side. So um, figuring out which cooks have have the needs and, and the skill sets that, that make them most likely to, to be impacted by, um, by what, what we've built, um, and then building uh, platform tools, education, and technology um, to, to, serve, to serve their needs. Um, see if I can scroll down a little here. Um, I'm not quite sure if the full slides show. Yeah. Did I just do that? <laughs> Okay, um, so what, what we've built for Josephine, um, in, in a lot of ways, low-key, we're an education company. Um, so we have, um, we've, we've built all these educational tools and business training behind the scenes to help cooks build their own food businesses. Um, and we prioritize supporting them rather than, than the end consumer uh, with platform tools, safety and business education, and, and a highly uh, collaborative community. Um, and basically, we believe that investing in and trusting um, these cooks, these these folks that don't necessarily want to professionalize or or aren't ready, um, 
that uh, by investing and trusting them, giving them the skills, ownership, creative license to run their own business, um, we're, we're going to be able to uh, create something that uh, has, has uh, consumer appeal and, and that's, that's paid off. These, these cooks know uh, what their communities uh, need and want and the, the typical Josephine cook that's successful uh, finds 5, 10, 15 families within a 10 block radius of their house. Um, so they're, um, they're reaching out to their communities through uh, tools that we've built uh, for them like a, a CRM, um, a uh, templated uh, marketing copy for them to contact their church groups and their PTA groups and message their neighbors um, to, to essentially create these, these small community uh, meal services that, that can be really, really impactful, um, really impactful economically for, for these cooks. Um, and we give them things like a uh, million dollar liability insurance, sponsorship for their food handlers, cards, uh, take a lot of uh, the basics out of um, what it takes to start a food business. Um, and, then, and then also try to give them access to as much as possible um, support and benefits. So marketing workshops and skill shares that are hosted by cooks for each other um, and, and also access to bulk sourcing opportunities, CSAs, things that typically make it kind of hard for individuals to, to compete with what's already one of the lowest margin and, and most competitive uh, industries um, in the country. Um, so um, going on to, let's see. Are able to, Isabel, it says you're the host now, or, or perhaps Andrea. Um, oh, there it goes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and so, so really what, what we're trying to, to build here is an opportunity for, for all cooks. Again, it's not just the professionals. There's, there's only 2 million professional cooks in the country, uh, the folks working line cooking jobs, culinary educated chefs. Uh, but there are over 150 million home cooks and, and tens of millions of, of really experienced home cooks with, with experience cooking in bulk for their families, for their neighbors, for their church groups and, and cultural groups. Um, and, and we've identified, uh, based on our current take-in engagement, which uh, has a lot of our, our mature cooks doing $10,000, $30,000 a year in income from the platform that, that with about a thousand mature cooks. Josephine uh, will be a, a financially self-sustaining network. Uh, right now, we, we have an internal team of, of 11, uh, largely uh, product and, and design, um, and, and we're, not, we're not a self-sustaining uh, company, um, but uh, we believe that with, with just a thousand mature cooks from, you know, obviously these, these tens of millions of, of experienced cooks in the country, um, by identifying the ones that that we can solve for the greatest impact of the folks that have the skills already but but may also have the life the lifestyle constraints of stay-at-home kids and grandkids or um, language barrier limitations um, and and need to work from home uh, for a variety of reasons um, by finding that sliver of, of that community um, josephine pretty quickly becomes a, a vibrant and self-sustaining uh, network
and what we've what we've really what we what we re really identified is that uh, there's there's a luckily for us as a team of activists a completely strategic alignment between the cooks that that we serve uh, from a mission perspective and and the cooks that do well on the platform are hustling to build a food business need the economic empowerment opportunity. Um, the, the, the demographics are of our community are 85% women, almost half people of color, uh, almost 40% have, have a household income of under $45,000. And in our last poll of our community, um, we're working with close to 200 cooks now. Um, in our last poll, 83% uh, of them are, are not currently employed full time. So they're, they're kind of used to uh, cobbling together a lot of, of part-time gigs. Um, but the majority actually tell us that their aspiration would be, uh, if they could, to build to build a home food business that would that would support themselves and their families. Um, and so we've we've realized that on the on the producer side, on the cook side, the need and impact is there, and and the value proposition is very clear. And by empowering these cooks to reach out to their own communities and um, and feed feed folks the, the food that they know works, um, we can actually create a very compelling consumer opportunity as well. So to understand correctly, Matt, you're saying really that there's a combination within the cooks that are on Josephine between ones that would be happy to remain um, occasional cooks or part-time cooks and ones that uh, would aspire to having that as their, their full-time On November 30th, 1835, in Missouri. I would say that so the majority telling us that their aspiration would be to fully support themselves with their own food business. Western Union. Is, Mark is Twain became a very aspirational. I think a lot of, a lot of these um, cooks are used to pilot, having two, three, four part-time gigs in the, in the food industry, uh, catering, private chefing, etc., to support their, uh, their livelihoods. And, and um, I think it's aspirational, but a lot of them would like to do that. Um, some of them would, would like so to start a food truck or, or a food cart or maybe even a brick and mortar, and this is kind of an incubator. Um, and then some of them also um, are retirees or stay-at-home parents and, and really are just looking for those nights where they're already cooking for the family and, and want to serve five or ten extra portions to their community and, and are happy with a few thousand dollars of, of auxiliary income. Um, so it, it kind of runs the gamut. But what we've found is um, the folks we do best with um, are the folks that uh, really, really kind of want to be running a home food business. Uh, and this is not just a, uh, a stay over between their uh, professional chefing gigs uh, because they have, they have more access to um, higher paying opportunities, have the same kind of hustle and drive to build a small food business from home. Uh, so the, the folks for whom we have uh, the ability to impact uh, the most are also the folks uh, that are strategically the best fit for the platform. Um, and um, the let's see just to give you a sense of um, the the type of the type of cooks we work work with um, also over a third of, of our cooks on, on the Josephine platform are first generation in this country um, Hai has become a good friend he he's a Vietnamese cook who lives uh, in Emeryville uh, and uh, until um, 
until 2015, uh, early the beginning of 2015, he lived in, uh, in Saigon and he had run a restaurant that was passed down for like three generations, uh, from his, from his great grandmother, um, or, or his grandmother. Um, and, uh, so had a lot of restaurant experience, moved to this country with his partner, Joe, and was, was bagging groceries at Whole Foods because he's, he's ESL, didn't have capital or business education to start anew, um, but started cooking uh, from Josephine. And uh, he now cooks full time um, for, um, for folks in his, in his community. He just started um, because we've, uh, we've, we've uh, had to close our, our public uh, marketplace in California. He, he just started doing pop-ups in a, a, a local commissary kitchen. This is, this is an example of a, a great community builder, someone that wants to share his, his culture, his, the, the stories of his family through his food. Uh, and wouldn't have had a wouldn't have had a shot of doing that of, of having the the creative license and, and ownership to run a small business um, without without what we've done which is which is lower the the barrier to to getting started um, the 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 barriers right now be, between renting expensive commercial kitchen space uh, getting getting permitted and 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 licensed um, can be can be pretty prohibitive um, and. And what our goal is, is, is to, to provide, a, provide an opportunity for this, this tranche of cooks that, that otherwise just wouldn't have had um, a shot of, of, of doing, doing something interesting in the food industry. So therefore would have either avoided it um, or, uh, or been just disillusioned and, and maybe fairly uh, poorly treated by it. Um, Jocelyn is another example. Um, a cook that uh, has has pretty heavy requirements at home, uh, the need to to care for family members, and uh, was was doing uh, was doing private chefing and catering gigs outside of the home, uh, but was was just overjoyed to find an opportunity where she could stay uh, at home with the family members, uh, provide that care, uh, but also have an opportunity to serve occasional meals to her community and and get some some extra income. Uh, coming in, um, so what, one of our convictions, working with all these all these folks and, and becoming friends with them, is is that um, you know we need to advocate on their behalf. Um, many many of our cooks have spent their lives uh, working in the shadows of of an exclusive and expensive industrial food system um, because the the regulations were written for and often by. Uh, large corporations. Um, many, um, many of the, the requirements just effectively shut out this this sort of of micro enterprise. And uh, the, the private caterers, the curb, curbside tamale hack, hawkers, the the, per, the personal chefs um, of our day to day convenience as as consumers um, don't have the resources for costly commercial kitchen space. Uh, nor do they have the voice to change laws crafted around large industries. So. We believe in telling their stories and, and advocating on their behalf. As I, as I mentioned at the very beginning, we want to be a, a collective voice uh, that emerges for, for this network of, of folks that, that need it most. So uh, with, with that in mind, we've, we've, we've really tried to ally ourselves and, and work with 
progressive food system leaders around the country. We're, we're fortunate enough to be in Oakland, California, where uh, the Sustainable Economies Law Center that, that you alluded to earlier with Janelle uh, passed the past or spearheaded the, the Cottage Food Act here in California back in 2012. Um, we're also um, working uh, very closely with, um, with Slow Food and the Cottage Food Operators Association of America, um, a bunch of uh, the law schools that have taken an interest in uh, cottage food and, and, and changing uh, the laws around that. And then, and then our local food policy councils. And we've, we've created a, a working group with uh, almost 20 of our cooks, but also food and labor justice organizations from uh, around, the, around the state of California that, are, that are, were already committed to advocating for, for greater opportunities uh, for small food businesses. And, and we want to uh, help create the, the, the groundswell network of, of voices uh, to, support, to support that change. Um, a lot of these folks are, are working, um, a, lot, a lot of the logos we have on here are, are uh, from folks that are, that are working in their own ways, not, not, not always uh, in direct uh, collaboration with Josephine, but, but all, of them, uh, all of them inspire us. And, and we've been fortunate enough to, to pile on to this existing cottage food movement and, and find ways to advocate on behalf of, on behalf of our cooks. Um, Shifting now to, to the topic that I hope will, will dominate a lot of our discussion and Q&A here, um, but, but that third point, how do we, if, if we truly want to be an uh, emergent voice for these folks and, and uh, advocate and empower on, on the behalf of a diffuse group of, of providers, folks that haven't had a lot of, a lot of power historically, um, how do we build non-negotiable values and provider rights into our platform? Um, Admittedly, we're we're pretty uh, we're pretty naive and uh, inexperienced in this work, so we we feel that we're bumbling into it. But so far, we've we've just started talking about it with with dozens of advisors, mentors, other organizations, um, and the the will there from from our team is is to keep getting better, um, even though so far we're we're pretty early on in the process. So uh, we announced uh, last fall. Uh, that we were going to commit to uh, certain uh, certain tools for ownership, agency, and transparency uh, with our with our cook community. Um, we we announced um, basically a placeholder for cook ownership uh, that we were going to designate that we designated a a twenty percent um, stake in in the company um, via a provider stock option pool uh, to be distributed to cooks beginning this year. Um, but we're, uh, we're, we're in the midst of thinking what that looks like, what would be meaningful, and, and frankly don't think that that probably goes far enough. Uh, but it was something that was, was a comfortable enough and, and uh, familiar conversation for existing investors um, that, that, we've, uh, that we've worked with uh, to, to fund the company so far. Um, and on that we, point, uh, I would yeah. encourage, uh, um, especially the, the investor network members that are on the call that might be familiar with some of these uh, provider rights to chime in at any point, or we'd be happy to share with you Matt's deck with, uh, with the ideas that he's, uh, that he's sharing, and you can always get back to us afterwards with, uh, with any suggestions for how they might be going about these ideas of, uh, uh, of shared uh, uh, provider rights and, and ownership. 
Uh, thanks, Andrea. Um, the, the the other the other pieces so far that we've that we've just announced publicly um, as as a demonstration of of the direction we're moving and and our commitment uh, is that we we have a, a Cook Council now that that we meet with uh, regularly for essentially just kind of gathering and channeling feedback from our community and and inputting into our strategic decisions. And we've given that council teeth by uh, uh, allocating board seats. So, so right now, one seat is, is held by the Cook Council and two are held by, by myself and my co-CEO, Charlie. Um, but the interest there is that Cook Council representatives would, would always uh, outnumber or at least be equal to uh, the, the voice and board representation of, of external stakeholders uh, like investors. Um, and then uh, just committing to transparency. So uh, open sourcing all of our, our equity plan and uh, Cook Council and Board of Directors decision is, decisions is something that we're uh, starting uh, this quarter. So uh, we, we have an open source company handbook for our internal full-time employees, uh, but we're, we're working to, to open source the uh, the, the tracking of, of um, basically how we reflect that network um, and uh, yeah, just hosting regular meetings with uh, between our leadership team and, and our council and, and always leading with transparency on, on important things like pricing model. So, um, you know, a lot of the complaint and concern from providers using uh, to go back to Andrea's analogy earlier um, using things like Uber are, are that overnight your, Earnings that you're relying on to support your family could be could be cut twenty percent um, without any any prior warning um, and and without a lot of transparency. So, uh, given that that this income is so critical for for a lot of our cooks, we 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 think that uh, the revenue model of of the uh, organization that's that's empowering the cooks needs to be incredibly transparent. Um, so that's that's where we are so far. Um, what I want to do is, is cycle into kind of what we're thinking about now um, and, and where we think we might go in the future as, as the springboard for, for the Q&A. Um, because, like I said, I, uh, we're, we're bumbling into this, and, and I know for a fact that a lot of the folks on this, on this webinar have a lot more experience uh, and knowledge than I do on, on how we can make this stuff real. Um, so... The challenge, the, the, the real challenge for us at this point is identifying risk capital uh, that, that can finance uh, Josephine at, at what is admittedly um, a fairly, um, fairly high risk stage. So we, we still have a lot of operational improvement work to do. We still have a lot of systems change and advocacy to work, work to do. Um, who's willing to take a risk on, on um, financing an early stage platform like ours? Um, in a way that doesn't set a course of dependency upon uh, profit extraction and, and unsustainable growth. Um, so, um, you know, I think I think some of the opportunities uh, of of really values-based investing are are that we could prove um, mission alignment with with the core of our model um, and and demonstrate. Uh, a, a model to to other emerging scale platforms um, that that could be very appealing and start to set set a better course for this infrastructure layer of the new economy um, and I think strategically there's there's very good reason to to argue that that uh, by aligning the long term 
value proposition of providers, but the decisions of um, of the organization itself, uh, we can do we can do a lot better. Um, we can do a lot better of attracting and retaining uh, the right types of cooks. Um, you know, ultimately, um, it's very clear to us that our most important um, source of uh, <laughs> value and uh, impact is is our, our, our cooks and, and making sure they're protected, secure, um, and that the, the organization itself is, is focused on um, empowering and advocating for them. It just makes good long-run business sense. Um, and we want to prove that. Um, and, and lastly, on this, sorry, go ahead, Andre. No, just to be explicit, Matt, this would be a kind of uh, investment that is not contingent on uh, um, uh, on an exit by sale of Josephine, correct? So for, for those on the call that might have been on our prior call on preferred equity financing models for co-ops that we did with uh, um, Equal Exchange and uh, with Namaste Solar in Colorado, you might recall this idea of having a provision of, uh, of capital for more uh, co-op multi-stakeholder controlled entities that would not force a sale or even um, promote a sale at the end of the investment. Yeah, that's, that's right, Andrea. I, I think that um, we, so on the next slide, I'll get into um, the, the various strategies that we're considering. Uh, but I think one of the, one of the core considerations is, is how do we, how do we prevent uh, an exit or, or a change in the direction of the company that, that wouldn't defend these, <coughs> these underlying uh, values and, and provider rights. Um, and um, you know, I, I think the last point there is is that there are some marketplaces. You know, the the Ubers of the world, uh, the Task Rabbits of the world, that that may succeed by commodifying or eliminating human labor with with drones and self driving cars. Um, but there are others uh, that will instead succeed by empowering service providers. And uh, we're we're one such platform. You know, that we, we provide a creative, differentiated service that. Uh, is not just food. It's not just the food product. It's the community connection, the experience of meeting a cook on your block and uh, having that cook know the names of your kids and give them a hug <coughs> every time you go to pick up food. And it's a very different uh, experience. You know, our, our our customers tend to be parents and families, um, and um, they they connect with with our cooks in a way that looks looks like connecting with your neighbors you know they go every wednesday after soccer practice to wanda's house to to pick up dinner um and uh for us the the core of the josephine value and experience is this creative um cultural uh connection through food um because home cooking is about personal touch cultural story community connection uh so empowering cooks doesn't just feel good it's it's essential to the business um and uh, luckily is, is uh, consistent with our excitement as, as a team. Um, and uh, lastly, um, a, lot of our, a lot of the systems change work that I'm alluding to collaborating with, um, with state, um, state and local health authorities. You know, I'm drinking from, I, drink, I always drink now for the last four months from my I Love Environmental Health mug. Uh, because Christina Outfield and I from Salic had the opportunity to go down and speak at their their annual conference uh, of, of California health regulators last, uh, in September. Um, you know, 
collaborating with, with civic institutions and proving that we also have the, the interest, uh, the public interest in mind uh, is, is important to us. We think that the future of, of regulation and platforms uh, probably uh, looks, looks a lot more like, like open and federated data models that we can actually help uh, governments do a better job of provisioning services, uh, providing equity and inclusive op opportunity for their populations that, that need the most. Um, and to be credible as a collaborator with, with governments and regulators, it makes sense to us that, that we should be driven and, and um, focused by, by the folks that we serve. Um, the challenge, of course, is, is that we, we still need, as, as I mentioned, a significant amount of capital, and, and we're uh, still at a fairly risky stage. So, so Project Equ Equity uh, says that the two readiness factors for, for co-op conversion, if we were to go that route, are are not only a commitment to the to, to a transition from owners and employees, which which I believe we have, um, but but also um, a successful and, and stable business model with with positive financial forecasts and scenarios that ensure um, that they could uh, cover the cost of, of buyout capital, even even if you know there was a business cycle downturn, and and we're not there yet. Um, we. Uh, we think that we need probably $10 million uh, plus or minus to scale to a place where we're financially sustainable. Um, and uh, we don't have a lot of ability to, to raise that internally um, from, from uh, providers. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of our work, the offline community building of, of cooks as, as coworkers and um, the advocacy work that we do um, at, at the state and, and local level uh, isn't cheap. Uh, you know, this isn't this isn't open source software. There's there's um, there's uh, a lot of significant cost to scaling this impact, and and we're we're cognizant of of that challenge as we think about the direction we want to move. So I'll wrap up here. I I, I really want to get into uh, the Q and A, um, and I'll leave you Can with I this. Crack you for a second with that. Yeah. 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 So, um, and, uh, and forgive me for going back over the same point. So one of the tensions that we often see on this uh, impact that is based on a, um, on a network effect of sorts, right? The more, and, and in this case, you truly have baked in that the more you grow, the more impact you will have on the, uh, on the cooks. Um, however, the, the fact that so much of it is based on community building, if I remember correctly, when you go into a new community, you truly try to, to build human relationships there, right? Uh, it's, not, it's not all online. The online mediation is just for, for, the, for the platform piece. Right. Combining that with the, um, with the advocacy piece, seem to be two major uh, slowdown points, perhaps, for the, for the growth that Josephine would, uh, could have. Um, and and uh, I imagine a couple of answers to that are like, well, yeah, we'd rather do it right, and there's only one way here to do it, and it's, uh, it, it's a little bit slower. Um, but I'm wondering if, there is, if you can flesh out that tension a little bit for us and help us understand how you get to that sweet spot of, how much you really need to grow, even if this is not going to be a VC unicorn type of thing, but you still probably need growth for this thing to right. work out well. And, right. uh, and yeah, how do you find that, that, that sweet spot there? Yeah, it's a great question and, and one that we're, we're still figuring out, obviously. I, I think that um, the advantages of, of, uh, from a growth perspective of this business are that 
Um, it's not capital intensive. You know, we, we, um, the way we move into new neighborhoods is finding what we call community lead cooks uh, that are already pillars of, of whatever community they're in. Um, oftentimes they're the folks that are hosting, you know, the, the cultural group potlucks or the church bake sales um, and, and working with them to, to bring them in, uh, in a way that's authentic to that, to that community. Um, it's not, um, you know, it's not us riding into West Oakland on, on a high horse saying eat more kale, <laughs> but it's, it's finding <coughs> Wanda, who's a stalwart of the, the black urban ag community um, to, to, to cook her, her amazing um, jerk chicken and collards for her community in, in a way that, that works. So um, the growth is very organic uh, when done right, <coughs> but it, it, it feels and looks a lot more like field organizing, you know, almost from a political campaign to draw an analogy than, than it does like traditional um, tech growth, I suppose. And, and um, part, of, part of the challenge of solving for impact is that there's, you know, there's a bias. The folks that hear about us from traditional business and tech news are not necessarily the people that will benefit most from the platform. So how do we get out into communities, you know, up in Portland, I'm doing cook info sessions next Wednesday at uh, a few of the CDCs, uh, the community development corporations um, in a couple of the most vulnerable populations of the city uh, that we really want to work with from an impact perspective. Um, and, uh, you know, there are language barriers, there are um, awareness barriers that make uh, traditional kind of tech growth uh, harder with those communities, but, but ultimately a lot more value valuable from an impact and, and strategic perspective. And, you know, I think part of part of the challenge at this point is, is that we're, we're still fight, uh, fighting an uphill battle of, of legitimacy. Uh, the uh, the assumption um, on the consumer side that was developed in the industrial economy is, you know, I can only trust brands, <laughs> even though, uh, as we know, we, we all trust our moms and our and our aunts cooking. Um, and and on the on the cook side, these are folks that have been implicitly asked their entire lives to be to be silent to stay in the shadows um, and and activating those communities right now um, requires a certain type a lot of our a lot of our uh, early cooks and, and even customers uh, see themselves as activists and want to be part of this change um, but I, I do think that as we as we start to have some breakthroughs when it comes to legitimacy um, the 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 flywheel of growth becomes a little bit easier um and as you've said we don't need astronomical growth for this to be a, a, a financially sustaining network uh, but we we want some and, and we want we want this to be available in every community across the country um and and how do we get there in a way that that feels authentic and, and preserves the the mission and values um long-winded i'm not sure if that answered your question but i'll move on to uh this last slide, which is um, coming, bringing it back full circle to you know Josephine as a, a tool of, of generating profit for society um, rather than a narrow class of, of stakeholders, um, and and our our priorities um, our priorities with that in mind. Um, I guess I guess the la the next slide is is the potential strategies, but our priorities on the left hand side, the the mission and values that I've already mentioned to you. Uh, on the right-hand side, some of some of the associated um, uh, priorities from an organizational perspective. So, 
limiting profit extraction or, or at least not having that be uh, overriding uh, focus of the organization, distributing control um, and, and strategic direction, um, and, and ultimately preventing uh, a long-term change of control or exit uh, that would, would undermine any of those missions. Um, and, and we've started to talk as a team uh, about a lot of potential strategies to, to hold us to, uh, to those priorities, uh, ideally without limiting the scale of our impact. So uh, things that I've already mentioned on the left-hand side or that we've already uh, really kind of vetted out with existing investors um, are some of the safer options, like increasing cook presence on our board, um, doing this, this cook ownership via an options pool, uh, establishing a dedicated, perhaps nonprofit advocacy arm to uh, to shoulder a lot of this legislative and advocacy work that that we're doing um, uh, in a way that that uh, really really is systemic rather than Josephine focused, um, and and re reincorporating as a benefit corporation to name some of those um, to name some of those priorities. Um, those are all easy things from the perspective of we've talked about them as a leadership team with our existing investors and they are palatable, knowable, understandable within kind of the context of, of where we are uh, today in the economic system. Um, on, on the right-hand side are, are some of the things that we've talked about uh, at length with our leadership team, with some of our mentors and advisors, but I think would be um, a, little bit, uh, a little bit further out there and, and frankly um, might, <laughs> might need a, a totally new type of investor uh, to get excited about. Um, in order for us to uh, make a decision that we could go down that path and, and still, still sustain the work that we are doing. Um, so we've, we've talked a lot about um, our own equity conversion plan and, and limiting uh, our own returns as the founding team, something that we're very comfortable with. Um, we've talked about, uh, to Andrea's point, prohibiting perhaps in our bylaws certain types of exit um, or acquisition, um, negotiating, uh, with new investors uh, and, and uh, frankly, going back to old investors to, to look at capping the returns, um, you know, options like royalty-based uh, financing. Um, and then um, the, the option of converting to a cooperative or a nonprofit or one of the things that uh, we've been excited about the possibility of uh, would be some sort of hybrid entity structure, perhaps a, a nonprofit um, organization that that is overarching uh, whatever the whatever the revenue generating organization is itself. Um, but these are these are all things that um, we we again are bumbling through and, and haven't necessarily um, found the right types of investors to talk about with. And and that's a lot of why I decided to get the conversation started here with with Transform Finance. So, Andrea, how do you want to uh, do the, the Q&A bit? I, I'm not sure if this was the best setup for, for taking questions from everybody, but uh, we're definitely uh, excited to talk more with the experts. Um, thank you very much for that. Let me, uh, let me see. I'm going to try to unmute um, Anair. Uh, that I see raised his hand uh, on air you should be on and then we'll we'll see how the other questions are coming in again the easiest way if you are on the platform this platform uh, is uh, to raise your flag and uh, um, and Isabel will get you to join hi there hi looks like I got the camera 
good thing I was decent. Um, um, so thanks, uh, thanks a lot. This is really interesting and uh, super thought provoking. Um, and I was just, um, I'm, I'm kind of trying to square the math with the, and like, how do you make this work with uh, what you were saying earlier about the, uh, the kind of that $10 million uh, need? And um, I think sort of at a high level, you can either, I mean, a lot of, the, a lot of this um, innovation and creativity and ideas, you can sort of either implement if you're, if you're, when you're sort of profitable, right, and you don't need investors as much, or when you're, when you're such a rocket ship startup that the, any venture fund is basically saying, yes, sure, whatever you want, we're on board because, you know, we want to be on board, right? right? And it's really hard to kind of play in between, right? Um, so, you know, some of the things, some of the ideas like having a option pool and, you know, that's fairly um, 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 familiar territory, right? Mm -hmm. for, for venture investors and they can, and even if it gets diluted from one round to another, it can get renewed just as an employee op uh, option pool gets renewed and refreshed and, you know, that's, that's, that's fairly uh, doable as long as you're kind of on that path, right? But, but then right. some of the other, some, I think many of the other ideas, and especially when you, as you, as you, you just mentioned kind of the, 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 even just the model or the traje trajectory almost inherently being um, a little bit s slower, kind of more moderate growth, which that obviously doesn't play well with, 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 you know the venture model in general yeah and, and you know so i kind of wonder how how you, you make sure not to get sort of stuck just kind of in between right where you're where with a 10 million dollar ask or you know multiple asks or whatever 10 million dollar need uh kind of puts you in the venture space right um more so than kind of royalty finance or any of those things uh but you're not really playing by their rules either right so right. Uh, so then I, I guess I guess the question would be or a two-part question would be one I'm curious what conversations you have had with venture funds so far and have there like what the reaction has been and two is is there I'm, I'm like what are some creative ways where you might need less than 10 to get to that place totally um, thank you it's a great question uh, and and frankly, our, our growth so far uh, has been pretty quick. It's, 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 pretty, it's pretty along the lines of what we'd be looking for for, for venture financing. Um, part of the challenge, uh, I alluded to this earlier, but uh, we reset our business um, in, in June and July of this year. Um, we uh, extracted an agreement from state health regulators to collaborate and sponsor hopefully be neutral or even co-sponsor uh, legislation uh, for the second time uh, this year. Um, but as, as part of that, we, we shut our entire public marketplace in, in the East Bay, which had been our entire business. So since July, we've, we've reopened in Portland and Seattle. Uh, we've continued allowing uh, a private chefing and catering model here in the Bay Area. And we've, we've grown uh, 30 to 40% every month uh, for six months. Um, so we're, we're, we continue to grow uh, at a clip that is consistent with, with what might be venture financeable. Um, and we think that 
um, by late this year, September, October, we, we might actually be at, at the kind of like $1 million run rate revenue point that, that a traditional like series A would happen at. Um, and part of the, part of the uh, need right now is, well, we need to, we need to extend our runway a little bit. We have, uh, less than six months of cash and we were set back probably six months by shutting down our business and moving up to the Pacific Northwest. Um, but we also need to, to prove that we can reduce risk and, and a lot of, a lot of the, uh, traditional, um, sure folks we've talked to have been pretty wary of, of a lot of the systems change and advocacy work that we, we pour so much of our time into. Um, so, we, we do think in the next few months, um, we're, we're hoping to announce uh, both the renewed legislation with support of health regulators, as well as um, uh, the potential uh, of pilots that we're discussing with a number of cities. Um, so we, we think we'll be in a position to substantially reduce risk and, and raise on the growth. But our hesitation is um, we, you know, if we get to a point where, okay, we can raise the the Series A at uh, venture terms, are we locking ourselves into this path of, of uh, extractive, uh, ex ex extractive, um, uh, extractivism and, and continued astronomical growth where, where we think that, you know, it might be sustainable now, but uh, if, we, if we get on that course of continually needing to be unprofitable, pour money on to satisfy investors and keep growing at, the clip that uh, the, the Silicon Valley paradigm has become. Uh, we, we think that we're putting not only ourselves, but uh, you know, not only our organization, but a lot of providers at risk in, in ways that some of these um, spectacular implosions of the, the tech unicorns are doing. So we'd love to get off this path as quickly as possible and, and move towards a more um, organic growth model that's, that's federated uh, and, and driven by communities rather than venture capitalists. But, um, you know, I think to answer your question, we are still playing by those rules. We are in a little bit of a tricky place because uh, the, the making ourselves very uh, visible and doing loud advocacy work uh, attracted regulatory wrath perhaps earlier than it would have if we'd done the uh, Airbnb Uber model of head down, uh, you know, be quiet, grow until you're too big uh, for anyone to shut you down model. Um, but uh, we're, we're hoping that we can, uh, you know, show, show that, that kind of strong growth, but, but then not become indebted to locking it in forever. Does that answer the question? Yeah, no, I mean, it'd be interesting to kind of unpack and brainstorm it, but yeah, no, that, that's helpful context, yeah. Yeah. If there are no other questions for the moment and you want to unpack that a little bit, that's, uh, uh, we, can, uh, we can definitely get into, get into that if you think it would, be, it, it would be helpful for you, Matt. Uh, yeah, would be totally, would be totally happy to. Um, uh, I guess, um, <laughs> what, 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 what needs unpacking? Um, now just uh, fleshing out a little bit more. Yeah. Where you see the, uh, the numbers, um, yep. 
and uh, and I, I I tend to agree with uh, uh, with Anera's view that uh, these start to look more like BC type of uh, type of numbers, and even if you reduce them a little bit, have you considered where some of this capital that you will need over the next six months will come, regardless of which strategy you have and which kind of structure you have um, in the governance piece. Totally. Well, uh, you know, of that, of that big number, 10 million, which, which we, we kind of projected out as, as where we think we could get to a, a real scale of, of sustainability with the organization. Um, right now, we, we think that a uh, million dollars of, of additional financing would get us to um, essentially uh, the, the benchmark of, of roundabout million dollar annual run rate um, that uh, traditional investors tend to use as, as the Series A metrics um, by, by September, October. So with our current growth trajectory that we've maintained that, that 30 plus percent growth um, since July, um, we're on track to hit a million dollar run rate um, by the fall. Um, and uh, what that looks like is, is only about 400 uh, mature monthly active cooks. Uh, so right now, as I mentioned earlier, we're working with almost 200, uh, but only, only 40, 50, 60, depending how you count, uh, are really hitting what we, um, what we consider maturity. And, and maturity for us, uh, and we've demonstrated it with uh, dozens of these cooks is is doing about twenty thousand dollars in in platform revenue uh, annually, um, and and so we've got about fifty of those mature cooks now. We've we've gone through a real onboarding sprint in the last uh, six months, so we we have two hundred uh, that are active uh, on the platform that we're that we're basically trying to bring through this this educational uh, and business training curricula to get them to a place. You know, a lot of these folks have have not. Uh, owned or, or managed a small business before. So teaching not only the tech skills of, of copying and pasting, but the basic business management, marketing skills. How do I think of myself as an owner and, and think about retaining customers and, and all of that work takes time, particularly with the communities that we're, that we're working with. Um, so we think we can get from the, the 50 we have today to, to 400 um, active mature cooks uh, by this fall. Um, and and add a at a, a twenty to twenty five thousand uh, dollar annual revenue for the cooks. That's that's two thousand to twenty five hundred dollars in in take for Josephine based on our, our current take, uh, which is ten thousand um, dollars. So that's or sorry, which is ten percent, <laughs> um, and and that would get us to a, a run rate uh, annual revenue of of close to a million dollars by by September October uh, at our current growth um, and. In parallel, you know, to make that to make that growth compatible with uh, with risk, we're we're really pushing hard on on regulatory uh, wins to reduce the risk. So uh, we're we're hoping to confirm. Um, I'm not going to name the city, but we're hoping to confirm a pilot uh, with with one of of uh, five cities that we're currently talking to um, by by March. Uh, we're working as I mentioned, with a number of CDCs in different cities and, and approaching progressive city government about, about a, a proactive stay of enforcement um, and, and have in these new places opened up proactive conversations with regulators uh, rather than letting them kind of come to us. And 
we're also hoping to have the co-sponsored bill in California giving us some, some air cover and, and leadership when it comes to this notion that we can change the, the, the laws of the food system um, because we'll need that, you know, that, that going from going from 50 to 400 um, uh, mature cooks probably means going from uh, 200 to, um, you know, six, seven, 800 uh, onboarded cooks. And, and that's a lot more visible. So we are going to be visible in these new places and, and we're being, um, really proactive about opening conversations uh, before they come to us uh, this time around. So uh, right now we're looking for a million dollars basically to get us uh, through that um, through that next uh, six or six or eight months. Um, and, and right now we're working with uh, significantly less time than that uh, in cash. Yeah. And uh, this might be clear to anybody else, but you seem to be uh, focusing, of course, on the on, on the cook acquisition um, much more so than the customer acquisition. But since your business model is based on this percentage of transactions, uh, do you have a similar plan, or do you do you think that to the extent that the cooks are on the platform, the customers will come? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting question. We we definitely started uh, this business focusing on the cook side and and building you know CRM, email uploader tools, templated marketing, and flyer copy for them to reach out to their own networks. Um, and that works, but it takes time. Um, and the challenge has been what kind of consumer uh, focused acquisition can we do uh, as Josephine the platform. Given uh, where we are right now with a lot of this culture change that's involved in in legitimizing home cooking, so it's very hard to sell home cooking to strangers. Uh, and and eighty percent of our current customers uh, uh, on the platform come have come in directly through our cooks' own networks. Um, but what we're doing is is uh, trying to become. Just in the last two months here, we've we've really dedicated a lot of resources to figuring out clever ways that we can kind of kickstart that process because, you know, maybe 20% of our cooks are real pillars of community or like hustlers that, that want to build their own food brand and go out and market themselves and be at farmer's markets and flyer their community message boards. But a lot of them are, are stay at home parents and grandparents that, you know, would cook an extra 10 portions if they could, they, they need and, and want the income, but they don't have the time or energy to go out and, and build a food brand. And so um, actually our, our most successful tactic right, right now, and uh, this, is, this is a breakthrough that we've had in the last month, uh, is uh, a partnership with Nextdoor, which is the neighborhood private social network uh, for folks that are familiar. And the, the difference there is that, that uh, actually a built-in trust because neighborhood, because uh, Nextdoor um, as a social network is bounded by uh, folks that are authenticated members of a usually about 10 block radius, which is exactly what we're working with, with our Josephine Cooks. And so um, Nextdoor just started their business uh, partnership pilot uh, in December, and we're, we're the fifth uh, partner that's, that's come on for Nextdoor. And, and by far, we are the most successful, <laughs> given that there's this, there's this very natural overlap between a hyper-local community and, and the, the cooks that want to serve that community. So our cooks are, are actually starting to market uh, through Nextdoor, and we, uh, well, sorry, a lot of our cooks ha have historically marketed through Nextdoor, but now for the first time, we are able to do uh, kind of air cover marketing in a lot of these neighborhoods that have cooks in them, and in a way that feels still uh, very, very local and, and not like it's coming um, 
from a, from a billboard advertisement. Again, not selling home cooking to strangers, but selling uh, an experience between neighbors. Um, and that's been really successful. And it's something that we're actually ramping up this quarter and, and uh, plays into uh, some of the growth projections that we think we can hit in the next, in the next six months. Very cool. Thank you. Well, it looks like we are up at the 90 minutes. We have here the contact information for, uh, for Matt, matt at josephine.com. And uh, if you'd like, we'll be able to share the deck with you as well. Um, you participants on the call, so please feel free to reach out if you'd be interested in seeing that and following up either with us or with Matt. And uh, um, uh, as a final note, I was going to say, we will do another session on uh, platform co-ops and this idea of multi-stakeholder ownership in the context of the Buy Twitter campaign that some of you might have heard about with uh, Nathan Schneider, um, uh, just so that we see how some of the principles that Matt has uh, brought up for us today might be applicable uh, in other areas um, as well. There's a, certainly we have neutrality there. And if you want any information on the activities of the Transform Finance Investor Network, or if you'd like to join us, please contact me directly. My email is there. It's Andrea, A-N-D-R-E-A, at transformfinance.org. Matt, a huge thank you to you. This, uh, this has been spectacularly informative and helpful for us, and uh, I think there will be uh, plenty of, uh, of follow-up for, for this. So thanks for all the work that you do, and thank you for this presentation. Yeah, thank you all so much for having me. As I said, I, I know that y'all are experts and, and would love to uh, take questions, feedback, and, and follow up uh, because we've got a lot to learn. So thank you so much for having us. Maybe, you know, since you, since you say that, and uh, I, I, I think we're all kind of uh, dilettantes here trying to figure it out as we go along in this period of, uh, of co-design and, and collaboration. Um, maybe I will reach out to a few of the folks that actually have expertise in this kind of structuring that I saw had registered for today, and we can set up a smaller group call if you want to explore some of those things. That would be amazing. All right. Excellent. Great. Thank you so much, Thank you. Matt. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye.